0: story in the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And this morning, this Sunday, the birds are singing. It's a picture-perfect California spring day, and this is episode 100, and my final exams are in a little over 48 hours, which is just crazy. I woke up Uh, In the early morning and just kind of pretended to sleep thinking about all of the questions that I might get and also just kind of worrying about whether I'd read enough, whether I'd done enough, whether... I'm any good at this thing, whether I'm going to exit that room at like three o'clock on Tuesday and just collapse into a heap crying because I am dejected and sad, or whether I fall into a heap crying because I am relieved and I've done well. We'll see what happens. So today in our penultimate episode of this final little push of uh, summing up my lists, I'm going to be talking about climate history. So first, I want to motivate this. I want to talk about why I think it's especially important to talk about the history of climate. Now, one of the big reasons is that because we have human lives on the scale of human lives and climate changes on a geological scale, we have this assumption that the climate is something stable, that it's something that naturally just kind of stays the same from century to century. And that while human beings change, while the lines of countries are redrawn on maps, while, you know, languages rise and fall, and while, you know, trends of hisco- historical time, you know, proceed in the way that trends do, that nature remains Roughly the same, that the sun keeps on rising every day, and winters are winters, and summers are summers, and forests happen where forests happen are made up of the same kinds of trees that forests are made up of for all of eternity. But that's not true. In the perspective of geological time, climate is not stable at all. Uh, the fact that the Earth has the atmosphere is uh, the result of what we might call a historical process. So the first aim of this kind of history is to insist that climate has a history, that it's not merely the human world that changes, but the natural world, and that this is important to understanding how human life, you know, has a history. The second reason why we want to study climate history is that um, it plays into some of the political debates going on about climate change today. If you talk long enough to a climate change denier or a climate change skeptic, once you get down to it, they'll go, look, we all know that the climate is changing. But that's probably not going to be much of a problem because, look, things are good when the climate is warmer. And this is a hard uh, 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 thing to question. However, looking at the actual history of climate change in the past... Suggests that even if in the long run humans are able to farm marginally more grain from a marginally warmer world, that the change will be deadly. So, before I want to actually talk about how we can think about uh, climate in history, I want to just offer some caveats about why this is a really difficult thing to do. The problem is that, that both The history of the climate and history of human beings are incredibly complex, and I don't just mean that to, you know, raise up my hands and go, oh, they're complex, it's hard to deal with. I actually mean this technically. Both are complex systems. Both are difficult to understand in the kind of way that we, you know, think that science works as some sort of Newtonian billiard ball universe. Climate science is incredibly difficult and probabilistic, which is one of the reasons why there's so much debate about what's actually causing um, the climate to change. Not scientific debate, but political debate. Because climate science cannot adequately predict exactly what is going to happen uh, as a result of changes to particular inputs and in climate models. That's because the climate is really, really not just one thing, but the interaction of tons of different systems. And to figure out what's happening, you need supercomputers and models and lots of thinking. Just to take a couple examples, uh, when we think about climate change, we usually just think of a simple model of the greenhouse effect. Humans burn fossil fuels, which releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is a quote-unquote greenhouse gas. It lets in heat, but doesn't let it out as much, and so it acts as kind of a blanket to heat in uh, the earth. But that's not simply what happens. Yeah, the blanket exists and and makes us a little bit warmer. But the climate is this interaction between the ocean and the land and the air. And so it's not so simple. One of the ways it's not so simple is just this thing called albedo. That is the fact that um, some of the Earth's cooling has to do with the fact that along the ice poles, there's a lot of snow, and snow is white and reflects light, and so it is a coolant. And because the world is warming and all of this ice is melting this albedo effect is decreasing, meaning that we might get to a point where we get into a feedback loop where uh, even if we don't put in any more greenhouse gases, the world will continue to warm because we're going to lose albedo. On the other hand, um, there is the uh, a big gigantic heat sink of the ocean. The ocean is huge and absorbs a lot of carbon dioxide and heat and acid, and so it acts as kind of a break to uh, larger term changes in the climate. This is throwing off some of the climate models in the past 10 or 20 years, but we know that the the oceans are slowly warming and that there might be a point at which the ocean warming uh, reaches a tipping point and starts to warm on its own. Uh, There's a scary scenario, uh, which is known as uh, the great burps of death, At the very, very bottom of the ocean, there are these methane uh, uh, secretions, but they're very cold, and so they freeze and they turn into ice, Uh, and as they uh, uh, melt and go up through the ocean, they get uh, absorbed into the ocean and broken down. But if the climate change is fast enough, these methane ice things will melt all of a sudden and turn into methane gas and rise up through uh, the ocean in what is called giant burps of death and then explode into uh, the atmosphere. And methane is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. This has happened once on Earth before, uh, and it led to very rapid global warming. Similarly, human history is incredibly complex, which you can see just by looking at the specializations of different historians. We not only have economic historians, political historians, cultural historians, we have religious historians, art historians, uh, literature historians, environmental historians, and each of us is trying our best to understand one little corner of human life. And we understand that. This one little corner of human life that we look at is incomplete, but we're still trying to understand it. Ever since Newton, um, maybe even before, there was the dream that we would find a Newtonian explanation for society. That we could be able to predict what happens with people the same way Newton was able to predict the orbits of planets. And there have been many attempts to make these sorts of sciences of society. In the 20th century, we can see some of the greatest threats to human life as coming out of people's confidence that they had been able to crack the code of how humans act. We have modernization theorists who believed that there was a simple formula to making people modern and develop. And that ended up in failure and economic uh, plight. We have uh, Marxists who... Uh, believed that uh, the works of Karl Marx offered a real science of society that could predict what would happen in the future and also justify atrocities that were made in the name of a a massive societal change. And that, of course, led to hideous problems. We have eugenicists and economists and everybody who's come forward with confidence that they can predict how humans act has led to violence and difficulty. And that is because humans are not uh, billiard balls. We are complex the same way that the climate is complex. And so, trying to put climate history and human history together seems just too complicated, too difficult. Now, that being said, we can settle on some basics of the two systems. And from that, we can suggest some real-world policy implications of what's going to happen. Let's first start with climate. First, we know that climate is not stable over the long term. It changes, and it changes often quite quickly because... Uh, If climate is stable, it's stable because of a bunch of homeostatic feedback loops. There's a bunch of different processes together that are all working against each other or for each other, keeping things roughly stable over the long term. But that means that if one of these feedback loops changes, it can set the whole balance off and lead to a new kind of equilibrium. The other thing that we know is that our current climate right now is a fluke. Actually, it's not just a fluke. It's a fluke of a fluke. Right now, we are in an ice age. That sounds surprising because when we think of ice age, we think of like a global blizzard. But no, we're in an ice age. An ice age just means any period of Earth's history in which there are permanent ice sheets in the poles. And that's true right now. But that's a fluke. Only 20% of Earth's history uh, has been an ice age. And not only are we in Ice Age, we're in an actually quite temperate period of our Ice Age. We're in a warmer period of what is usually a colder period of our Ice Age. And these two things mean that, that we should recognize the long-term instability of what we take as a normal climate. The climate that human beings evolved in, that modern science society developed in, is not normal. It is a pause in a much longer history of a hotter Earth. And that should give us pause about how we are changing the Earth's climate. Because we know that the climate changes, it can change quite quickly, and that the current climate that we have that we take as normal is not normal at all. Now let's look at human society. What can we tell? What big takeaways can we get from a long history of human society? Well, one thing that we can see is that human societies tend to grow bigger and more complex over time. They get population density, they increase their division of labor, their sophistication, um, and things generally get nicer for people in big uh, groups of people. And uh, States and empires form that are able to control war and oppression and create uh, new kinds of uh, uh, consumption patterns and sciences and arts, and things get better over the long term. But we also know that these complex societies are increasingly fragile the bigger and more complex they get, and that they get increasingly at risk of outside shocks sending them to their doom. And we also know that a lot of these collapses are due to environmental changes, to uh, diseases or famines or changes in uh, uh, growing patterns that cause uh, wars and invasions and migrations to happen. And we know that when these things happen, when these changes happen, they're not pretty. They lead to centuries of war and instability, dark ages and uh, destructions of civilization. So these things together suggest great pessimism about what's happening in the world right now. We know that the climate is delicate and we know that human society is delicate. And we know that even if we can't predict exactly what's going to happen to both, that it's likely that what's going to happen will be very bad. It's likely that the climate will change drastically in certain places, causing the collapse of some complex societies, which will cause in turn migrations and wars and famines, which will cause in turn the collapse of more societies. And we know also that probably eventually these collapses will end, That humanity will pick itself back up and rebuild. But that last time it happened in Europe, it took a thousand years to rebuild. Maybe a thousand five hundred. How long will it take this time? How many people will die? How much of our lives will be forgotten? and can we rebuild if if the climate is uh, changes as drastically as we think it's going to be changed how long will it take us to rebuild if all of our coastal cities are underwater how long will it take us to rebuild if we uh you know have changed the climate beyond the climate that is good for us to live in i know this is a bit of a downer but it's the the future that we're facing right now it it puts the moral core to my entire work. It's the the moral core to our generation. This is the problem we need to solve. And if we don't solve it, uh, then everything we take to be good about the past 300 years of history is over with. So there's two ways that we can study climate history. Um, The first is through looking at how changes in climate affect society and culture. And Uh, to a lesser extent because it's much more difficult to see how changes in society and culture affect the climate. The second way of looking at climate history is to try to figure out the intellectual history of climate, trying to figure out how people understand the climate as something changing over time. So first, let's talk about how we can see the climate changing society. The thing which is usually talked about in this period is the Little Ice Age. During the 17th century, uh, there was a decline in sun activity, uh, solar radiation. We know this because there was uh, what's called the maunder minimum in sunspots. There were far fewer sunspots uh, observed throughout the 17th century, and we know that uh, sunspots are a good proxy for total solar output, and we know that it was just colder in the 17th century. Uh, All of the archives that we can point to suggest that it got bitterly cold. An example of this is the fact that uh, rivers froze over, which now today do not freeze over. The Thames in London froze over five or six times, leading to frost fairs, where people would go out on the Thames and have little parties. But that suggests that it was very, very cold. Now, this little ice age is associated with another kind of development known as the global crisis or the general crisis of the 17th century. This is the fact that tons of what we might call advanced organic societies or complex societies collapsed. In the 17th century, there was an unprecedented number of civil wars and rebellions over this time period. Not only uh, the civil wars in Britain, um, but uh, wars of religion in France uh, and rev- revolution in China, uh, in India. It was it was it was desperate and bad, and lots of people died. Now, this is associated with global cooling because we know that when the Earth cools. Uh, famines happen more often, and a lot of these large crises happen because people did not have enough to eat and were, you know, starving to death. And this caused war and uh, 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 contestation. Now, there's some people who suggest that this is actually human cause, that it's anthropogenic climate change. The argument is a little tangentious, and it doesn't exactly fit Up chronologically, but it's it's an interesting attempt. The idea is that the Global Ice Age, uh, the Little Ice Age, was actually caused by uh, the Europeans' invasions of the Americas. When Europeans invaded the Americas, they spread a bunch of highly virulent diseases that did not have a lot of protection for them uh, um, amongst the native populations. And this led to severe depopulation in uh, North and South America. Now, North and South America were actually kind of densely populated before Europeans came. Teotihuacan was the biggest city in the entire world uh, when Europeans came. But this massive depopulation meant that uh, people stopped cultivating the land as much, and this meant reforestation. this reforestation acted as a carbon sink. Uh, more trees meant more less carbon dioxide in the air, which was one explanation for uh, the little ice age. Uh, however, the timing doesn't exactly match up. We know that uh, sunspot activity suggests that solar radiation was less. It's not exactly a, a slam dunk argument, but it's an interesting one to suggest a longer term history of human involvement in the climate. Now, this is an interesting uh, uh, development, but it's it's still hard to, to make stories about how changes in climate affect changes in history, and that's because um, it's difficult to actually fix what the climate was doing in particular places. We know that climate is incredibly local, that even though global trends might suggest one thing, that this actually uh, it is really difficult to show on a small level local basis. And the problem with this is that for most of human history, we don't have good climate records for particular locations. There were not meteorological societies until the 19th century uh, measuring the temperature and humidity and barometric pressure every single day. So we have to kind of take, uh, to get senses of what the climate are, we have to take what we can get. Reports of you know, obsessive scientists, um, natural archives of tree rings, and uh, it's imperfect. But this is a problem because if we want to connect changes in climate to changes in society, we need the local climate. We need to understand what's happening on the ground in particular places to actually make, you know, robust uh, connections between changes in climate and changes in society. And the second trend of this is to look at the history of how people understand the environment. Um, I'm just going to highlight one area of this. We could talk about the discovery of global warming, but it's a little bit at the end of of, of my time period, and I don't know a ton about it. So instead, I'm going to talk about how humans in the how Europeans in the 18th century imagined that they could change the climate. Now. At this time, people thought that humans could improve the climate through cultivation. The idea was that the world was beneficent, made by God for people to enjoy, but that people had to work to get this to enjoyment to to obtain. Um, And they had to work by taking care of the land, by cultivating it, by farming it, by tending to it, by irrigating it. And a proof of this that that European scientists and, and, and naturalists Uh, grabbed on is that North America was cold. Now, one of the weird things is that in North America, latitude for latitude, degree for degree, it's much colder than it is in Europe. Uh, We can see this by looking at uh, uh, the uh, uh, latitude of London and then comparing it with uh, the latitude in North America, which is up far in the frozen north. Why is this? Well, we know that Europe is warmed by the Gulf Stream, um, that this accounts for its uh, uh, temperate climate. However, people in the 18th century didn't know anything about the Gulf Stream, and so they looked for other explanations. Their explanation is that North America wasn't cultivated, that it was colder because it didn't have agriculture. And so they expected that once agriculture spread throughout North America, that the climate would improve. And this is like an early moment of people understanding that there's some sort of connection between human activity and climate. Uh, There's a deeper history about uh, linking human activity and actual environmental change, which I think we've discussed in the past with uh, uh, islands and, and gardens and stuff. Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, do all those things that you do to podcasts that you like. Thanks to Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. I'll be back this afternoon with the last episode of this series. Thanks very much for listening.